What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? Last month, we were joined by Steve Conte, a musician who has worked with everyone from Chuck Berry to Paul Simon. This month, things are equally prestigious as we welcome Chris Braid, one of the most successful songwriters of his generation, a man whose phone book includes the names of Sia, Lana Del Rey, Beyonce, David Guetta, Christina Aguilera, Glenn Tilbrook, Mark Armand and Hans Zimmer and many more on top of that. Hello, my name is Mark Fisher and in this episode of What Do You Call That Noise? The XDC podcast, I'm thrilled to be talking to Chris Braid about his songwriting collaborations with Andy Partridge. Oh yes, and we'll also hear a little from Andy himself. But before we get onto that, it's time for our regular feature in which you, the listeners, entertain us with your XDC-inspired songs. Since the start of the year, we've heard lots of great examples of your songwriting and creativity and this month it's the turn of Chris Carey and very appropriately in an episode about collaborating with Andy Partridge here he is to introduce Andy's shed. What do you call that noise? Hi my name is Chris Carey I'm a songwriter from Ireland born in the northwest of England lived in Lowton and this is about a song uh, Mark has very kindly allowed me to to mention my song Andy's Andy's shed which is off my last album, which is called The Jellyfish Doodles. I've released um, seven, maybe eight albums. I should know that, right? And uh, they can all be found on wigglewigglewiggle.chriscarry.com. That's Carrie spelled C-A-R-R-Y. So the genesis of the song Andy's Shed took its first steps one evening when I went into my room about quarter past ten at night to turn off the light. And I just saw my guitar and I picked it up and I strummed D, F sharp minor, G and A. And within seconds, Andy's Shed came into my head. The melody was instant, which is always a surprise. Took up my phone, put on the recorder and I just recorded myself playing those chords. It's a great gift from the universe when songs appear like that. And uh, I went to bed that night laughing at how I was able to find that song. And I say that modestly because I'm technically I'm a really bad musician. I do play everything on this except the drums, which I program uh, using Logic Pro X. The song, of course, is a tribute to Andy. I really believe that some of the finest music ever made, committed to magnetic tape or put into a digital file, has come from the XTC guys. So for the song itself, Andy has a garden shed where he records his music. It's nice to think of your musical heroes, though, isn't it? Simply ambling from their kitchen with a mug of coffee or tea in hand, down the garden path to the shed to put a few tunes together. The references in the song are all connected to Swindon, the hometown of the Fab Three. XT3? Anyway. I made some minor edits to the names of a local Indian restaurant and to a walkway synonymous locally as a reference in support of their LGBTQ community. And fair play, Swindon. If you haven't seen Swindon's Magic Roundabout, you should Google it. Oh boy. Anyway. The big horse on the hill, of course, is a reference to the chalky Uffington horse. At this stage, I probably need to confirm that I've never actually been to Swindon. And in case Andy et alia were worried, I don't intend stalking them. Possibly. In a turn of events at the end of the song, because I think I'd read that Andy had called the cops one evening on a a few overzealous revelers outside of his house. And I stand to be corrected if this isn't true. But I changed the narrative of the song from Andy to Colin and I name checked Dave and Terry. And I forgot Barry Andrews. Sorry, Baz. As a music fan, I would have known the XTC singles, of course, you know, great songs. And I was a big fan of Journals and Majors. 
But um, it wasn't until 1986 when I read a review of Skylarking in Rolling Stone magazine that I went out and bought that album on spec. And um, it's a masterpiece, as we know. When I put the link to the video up on the Facebook page, I had two immediate responses. One of them was, I think you'll find you've neglected to include Barry Andrews, who's the original keyboard player in your song. And that's absolutely fair, with continued apologies to Barry Andrews. I put a purposefully shonky video on YouTube for this song, and I don't think people got the joke. I did it in PowerPoint. That's how bad it was. Blue Peter, sticky back plastic, squeezy bottles and pipe cleaners. One great wit on the same Facebook page. You know, second comment I got back, which was, they suggested I needed psychiatric help. Ash, it was only supposed to be a bit of fun. Anyway, I took the link down. It I just a bit gutted, to be honest, to get that kind of feedback. And I just said, oh, that's, you know, the internet, you know. I wonder, was it the Barry Andrews fan? Anyway, so I, I guess in terms of how the sausage is made... Um, with the particularly with the vocals and some of the guitars, I put them through a um, a Leslie cabinet, a digital one, and um, I threw in a bunch of references that I hoped would be relevant to to uh, XTC listeners. Of course, then at the end of the song, there's a bait and switch uh, from Auntie to Colin, so that was probably in the second or third draft, and I just thought it was a funny way to end the song. So to wrap up. John and Paul will always be on the Mount Rushmore of genius songwriters. However, I'd like to think there's a chalky hill somewhere in Wiltshire where the resemblances of XTC, imperious and magnificent in their countenance, can gaze out across the land, maybe in the direction of Swindon. Here's Andy Shen. Dropped the boats, drove for hours, argued about stopping for flowers. What would he bring if he came to ours? Looking for Andy. Found the big horse on the hill, took some pictures, time stood still. Being there was such a thrill. Looking for Andy Shed. Let's go down to Andy's shed. We can listen to the magic in his head. Play guitars, break some bread down at Andy's shed. Let's go down to Andy's shed. We'll listen to the magic in his head. Play guitars, break some bread down at Andy's shed. He got there around quarter three. He didn't know where he would be. Start to rain on her and me Looking for Andy Is that a neighbour? I said, excuse me Do you know where Mr P Can be found conspiratorially He whispered to Ed's Andy Shed Talk.
talking heads Does he use a pen or a pencil? Ed will find out at Andy's shed Let's go down to Andy's shed Does he sleep in a feather bed? Maybe with a nice bedspread We'll find out after Andy's shed Let's go down to Andy's shed We can compare our bald heads I'd like to do it before I'm dead Go down to Andy's shed Let's go down to Andy's shed Do a cover-up, she said, she said Talk about a revolution in the head Down at Andy's shed Doesn't ring the please. Never thought of that. Hey, there's a change of plan. Where does Colin Molding live? What do you call that noise? Does he sleep in a feather bed? Never let it be said. We don't ask the important questions on the XTC podcast. Thanks very much for that, Chris Carey, whose music you can find at chriscarry.com. If you're a musician and you've written something inspired by XTC in some ways, I would love to hear from you. So just drop me a line at mark at xtclimelight.com. Three cheers for all the supporters on Patreon whose donations keep the XTC podcast running. If you've been itching to join them, then seize the day. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher and decide whether you'd like to be a pink thing, a humble daisy or a knight in shining karma. And if it's the latter, I'll read out your name at the end of each episode. And if you have an appetite for even more XTC, remember you can buy your copy of What Do You Call That Noise? an XTC discovery book at xtclimelight.com. And both Chris Braid and Steve Conte are among the many fabulous musicians who contribute to that book. So it's time to meet today's guest, Chris Braid. Chris is a songwriter, musician and producer who has scored n- number one hits on both sides of the Atlantic. His song Out There, composed with Sia and Hans Zimmer, won Best Original Composition when it was used to promote the David Attenborough series Seven Worlds, One Planet. He has produced several albums under his own name, including Life in a Minor Key, which was produced by Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, and Singer Songwriter, which contains solo versions of songs written by Chris for other artists. And he's one of the producers, a supergroup including 10CC founder Lol Krem, legendary producers Trevor Horn and Stephen Lipson, and drummer Ash Sohn. He has worked on all of Glenn Tilbrook's solo albums and with Mark Almond on The Velvet Trail, which helped relaunch Mark's career, and Chaos and a Dancing Star. And on the 8th of September, he releases Celestial Songs, the latest in a string of albums by the Downs Braid Association, which is his band with Jeff Downs, famous for The Buggles, Asia and Yes. And uh, that album you'll be interested to hear, includes Goodbye to You, Sister Shame, co-written by Andy Partridge, who also appeared on Skyscraper Souls in 2017, where he 
played mandolin, among other things. And it was Chris who played piano and organ and did the string arrangement on Made of Stars on the first of Andy's My Failed Songwriting Career EPs. And, and we're just about to hear him telling us about six more Andy co-writes, whose names go by the tantalizing titles of I Like Be With You, Woman at a Spinning Wheel, Queen of Planet Wow, Rain on a Burning Day, Map to Eros, and April in New York. And that's not all. You can read Chris talking about Dear God and the Disappointed in What Do You Call That Noise, an XTC discovery book, where he says, I just love every XTC song ever written. <laughs> uh, and uh, he is, to quote one of his biggest hits, Unstoppable. And he's here. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? And it was a very long introduction, but you've done a lot of stuff it, it um and and it strikes me that you've done a lot of stuff and yet if you tell me that you go out into the street and you don't get recognized i would believe you is that true well yeah absolutely yeah well, i mean totally it's kind of um a sort of place i like i like to be you know in in, in my world yeah i can do all the things that i love to do musically but i don't have the hassle that some of the artists i've worked with do and you, I mean, those are very, 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 very big names that you've dealt with. I mean, these these are people who can't leave their house without wearing a T-shirt with a slogan on it that's going to be photographed by the paparazzi and circulated on every newspaper in the world, aren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, I've worked with people like Beyonce, you know, and the security, you know, like you would believe it's like, you know, politician or something. It's quite, quite you know, something that looks terrifying to me, actually. And was it your ambition when you started out as an... Uh, as a musician to to go into that you know to have that level of success because i know you released stuff under your own name before becoming a sort of co-writer and a songwriter for other people you know i just always loved music so i was always demoing songs and writing songs in my bedroom you know from age whatever you know 11 12 i was doing it forever so i don't know if i was that conscious about wanting to be successful i just couldn't do anything else that i loved as much you know I was obsessed with listening to records. I always had headphones on and I liked writing songs and making little sort of, you know, miniature sort of uh, records on my four track. You know, so for me, it was just, it was music was everywhere, which is something I absolutely was obsessed with. And I think as a result of just sheer sort of, you know, dogged, you know, doing it, it something happened, I think, you know, more than any grand plan. It was just a love of it. There is a huge parallel there with Andy Partridge, uh, who who did get a bit of fame and didn't like it at all. Um, yeah. And and you know is I think wrongly sometimes referred to as a recluse. I, I think just because somebody doesn't 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 want to play that game doesn't make them a recluse. But um, I, I I imagine you've got quite a lot in common from that point of view. Yeah, we have actually. I mean, we both love records and the sort of you know the whole medium of you know. There's a little seven-inch single on a sleeve, and you know it's it's just a fascinating thing. It's it's a beautiful thing. I could sit for hours just in 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 you know my studio, just looking at the things, you know, packaging and all that kind of stuff. And I do like to perform live, and I have done it a few times with, like you said, Jeff Downs and Downs Brady Association with the producers. But it's not something that was a burning kind of thing. I did, you know, I never wanted to be one of those guys that did three hundred dates in a row. You know, I. I because it took me away from the creativity that I love so much. I could never imagine that, you know, you just sort of on the road, just singing the same songs night after night. It stops you from writing new ones. 
just before we started, I read something in the paper that said that the um, in they reckon that the rate of inflation for last month or whenever it was uh, in Sweden uh, went it went up the rate of inflation, and they reckon one of the major reasons is because Beyonce played there and all the hotel bills went up. <laughs> Imagine being so so influential that you can make the rate of inflation go up. <laughs> Unbelievable. I've got two kids and they went to see Anne Zimmer last night at O2. And he played the night before as well. You know, it's 40,000 people, a couple of nights. Incredible. It just doesn't really bear thinking about it, does it? But I mean, but that thing about playing live, you can enjoy playing live. You can go to a folk club and or a pub and, and play in a room above a bar, can't you? And and, and have the pleasure of, of, of playing. But that's very different to the to fame. The fame and, and the sort of grind of it, I think, you know, I mean, I did a bit of that in my early days of, you know, schlepping around in transit vans and things and up and down the M1. I did all that. It was it was good fun and stuff. But um, I always like to sort of do one-off things. You know, I thought, well, you know, it would be good to play the Royal Festival Hall. So we did that. Uh, I did that with Mark Harland, you know, played the Royal Albert Hall with Trevor Horn and stuff. And it's sort of ticking things off, I think, in my musical life. Okay, well, mm. I don't need to do it 12 times, you know, because it's not <laughs> it's the way I sort of see the world musically. <laughs> so you don't, you don't need to make the rate of inflation increase. Um, and I think, I mean, that thing that you say you you enjoy just even looking at the packaging of records, you're also a, a lover of music in the same way that, um, well, not just Andy, but all of it, as you say, are. But um, I, I think this uh, almost certainly of all my podcast is the first one where I've mentioned Lana Del Rey and Christina Aguilera. That's, I mean, it's a very broad church that you're, you're, you're a fan of soft cell. I know as well as working with Mark Almond, um, uh, you're a huge fan of XTC. You've worked with, with Jeff Downs and in, in, in a sort of proggy direction. I mean, are you just open to everything? Um, you know, people describe that project with Jeff as, as pro progressive, but I just think it's sort of, it's pop like I remember it, you know, mm. it, you know, I would say it's like widescreen and it, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's got a, an emphasis on production or whatever and good sort of playing. So I don't know if I, yeah, but I think you're right. I think, you know, I did read once and I've said this before, but it's something that sort of really stuck with me. It was a, a tweet from Johnny Marr, who I really love. I, I love some of the Smith stuff. And I love his guitar play, but he said something like, you know, when they were starting out, they didn't want to listen to, to crap like close to the edge or something like that he was really disparaging about that yes album you know and i thought well that's funny because i love close to the edge as much as i love the queen is dead on a different day you know i don't mm -hmm. see why we have to be so close to certain things i mean maybe it was just being you know it's that enemy sort of uh thing where you have to be you don't be uncool because you cancelled forever you know um i just i'm not like that i think i can find beauty in anything in a three-minute pop song or, you know, or 13-minute side of an album. Just music, music to me. I've got, I can always find something great in anything. So I, I think it's just an obsession, probably. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a perfect time for me to play this clip from Andy Partridge. What do you call that noise? Why do you call that noise? So I've, I've known him quite a while, and uh, he asked me to play some guitar on, a, on an album, Skyscraper Souls. Yeah, he's an occasional one of the producers, along with Trevor Horn, and occasionally Lol Krem as well. 
No, he's a good musician, and he's singing on all these and playing keyboards, playing piano mostly, and uh, I'm doing the occasional little burst of guitar. And uh, yeah, they're, they're 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 it's nice stuff. It's different to Steve Conti, but Steve Conti is different to the, the Three Club Men. Three Club Men are different to XTC. You know, it's all it's all good. It's all different. It's all food, but it all tastes different. That's exactly how I thought of XTC's career. Let's make this track different to the previous one and different to the one that's going to follow it. Let's make this album totally different to the previous one and so on. And it's it's that thing of you wouldn't want to just eat ice cream all day, every day. You know, you, you'd, you'd be going crazy for different foods. What do you call boys? So is is that your ambition as well to 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 make every piece of music different to the to the last one that you've made? Is that an an idea that you have as well? I don't know if it's a conscious idea, but I was I was signed to major labels as a as a you know at the beginning of my career, and I always found it frustrating that you do a, a song that they thought was a single, you know, they being the A and R or whatever, and then they go, "That's great, that's a single. Can you do four, four more like that?" You know, and it'll be like, "Well, no, I've done that one." You know. I can't just keep writing chips off the old block because they're never as good, you know, and I always got frustrated with that. And plus, being a big, you know, fan of the Beatles, who isn't, you know, that was a perfect example of an eclectic, you know, mix on an album. You had three lead singers for a start. Well, four, actually, you know, and every track sounded a bit different, but it all held together. So why suddenly in the sort of 90s did it, you know, become so important to make everything sound the same, you know? I found it frustrating. So it's not that it's a conscious thing to make everything sound different. It just as a creative person, you don't really want to keep repeating the same thing. If you know, mm-hmm. once you don't want, particularly want to do it twice, maybe. And I imagine a lot of the people that you've worked with will be severely under that sort of pressure from their record companies because because they are a big, proven global money-making oh. success, and and the, the record labels oh. will want to maintain stay successful. I guess, you know, we could all find ourselves in that situation if, you know, any one of us, if something became successful, you might be, you might tend to sort of, you know, think, oh, well, we should try and do that again because it made a load of money. You know, so mm-hmm. it's not their fault. It's just, it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? That yeah. capitalism at play, you know. I'm I'm wondering how far my question should go back because I just uh, noticed in something that I was reading that um, you started writing with Kathy Dennis not longer after she'd released Am I the Kind of Girl? And there's an XCC connection there because Andy wrote was one or two songs on that album. So I don't know whether you had a connection with Andy from that stage or or whether it's a more recent development, your connection with Andy Partridge. It's a more recent development than that, absolutely. But I knew Kathy for years because we were both signed to Polydor Records and we had the same A&I guy, Graham Carpenter wherever he is now. And um, he introduced us. He said, oh, you know, I was a young guy on the label. And he said, you should meet Kathy. And and so we met. And not long after that, I think we were both dropped from Polydor. And we were like, fuck, what are we going to do now? So let we said, let's write some songs. And so we started writing songs together. And that kind of kicked her off writing songs for other people. And, and me as well for a bit. You know, I sort of came in, dipped in and out of it. I went back and had, you know, dabbles in the artist thing after that, but I kept coming back to this 
thing. And I remember my, my, my manager at the time said, you know, you wait, you'll have a hit and you'll suddenly get a check with some money and it'll be very tempting to, to do it again. And that's kind of what happened. I just thought, well, yeah, this is quite nice. I get to be in the studio. <laughs> I get to write songs. You know, I don't have to go schlep it and sort of flog it to the public. And I get paid for it. Okay, fine. I'll do a bit more of it. To take the example of Kathy Dennis, what does it mean to co-write with somebody? Is it is it like one person does the words, somebody does the music, or how does that work? Uh, well, with, with writing with Kathy, it was always a 50-50 affair, really. We'd both write a bit of music, we'd both write a bit of the lyric, you know. But then there are other times I've written with people like, you know, um, somebody like Chris Difford from Squeeze. You know, I, I've written a few songs with him, and he would never write the music. He would always just send me a lyric. And I would write the tune to the lyric. And actually, I've done that with Andy a couple of times. There's a song on the EP called April in New York. Actually, there are a couple of songs where Andy's written the sole lyric, uh, April in New York and Queen of the Planet Wow. And he sent me the lyrics and I wrote the tune to them. It's great, you know, because you, you, you only have one aspect to concentrate on and sort of make that great, you know, because somebody else has done the other bit for you. So it's, it's kind of joy to write like that. A bit like Elton and, you know, Bernie write like that. Lyric first, tune later. Yeah, and I think that all of the Difford and Tilbrook output was like that, wasn't it? Absolutely. Is continues to be like that, even though Chris Difford sometimes performs the songs himself. It's, yes. it's that sort of backwards and forwards yeah. thing. Yeah. Exactly. Words first, then, then tune later. Yeah. Let's backtrack a little bit to introduce the what I take is going to be an EP and I take is going to be out in the autumn, but you can correct me um, on that. Um, you, uh, I've just been spending the whole day happily listening to all six tracks, all co-writes with Andy Partridge. And uh, as he describes it, it's a, a sort of your version of his, my failed songwriting career. I don't know if that's uh, correct, whether these were, were intended for other people. Yes, I suppose that is true. Although Queen of the Planet, wow, didn't come about like that. That was written later after the the majority of the songs. We started writing in 2014, and we were writing with this particular artist, Made of Stars is one of the songs, and um, and I think Woman at a Spinning Wheel, which is on the EP, was one of those songs as well. And for whatever reason, and of course, you know, you, you know, you can't you can't always win them all, as they say, you know, it wasn't right for that particular artist. So cut to many years later, and I've moved back to the UK because I've been living in Los Angeles for over 10 years. And I thought, well, I'll listen to those songs on the hard drive. And I dug them out and I thought, it's really good, actually. And it would be nice to do something with Andy because we've always been in touch over the years. Um, I, I thought, okay, I'll, I could sort of tart these up, you know. And I updated the production a little bit and re-vocals some of them. And then we added Queen of the Planet Wow to the five that I've worked on. And suddenly it was like, okay, well, this is a thing. It sounds like a thing now. So, yeah, I suppose it's similar to that. Mm -hmm. Although there are, there are new additions um, specifically. And you're not boldly going out telling everybody that this is a failure. No. <laughs> in the way that he's done. <laughs> well, I had a bit of a... I had a bit of a to-do many years ago with Andy because I said to him, I think you shouldn't call it that because you're selling yourself short, you know. And I was, uh, and I sort of felt it, you know. That it, was, it was not true, actually. and Well, certainly not true in his case. But, but 
every songwriter and every producer has things sitting on hard drives that didn't, you know, didn't make it all the way. And I do remember talking to a very famous producer um, I know very well. And I said, you know, sometimes you feel like you've got to do 10 things to get two, you know. And he said, you don't think it's any different for me, do you? And I thought, well, that was a real eye-opener because this person, you know, is kind of legendary or whatever. So I felt like Andy was, you know, maybe shouldn't be calling it that. I should be calling it my fabulous well it's it, it it's interesting for me because i work as a journalist and so i'm often interviewing people and inevitably you're interviewing them because they've done something interesting there's, there's a show going on there and, and you can write about it people can go and buy tickets for us or an album being released whatever it might be uh, but then I, I realized that i never hear about as you're talking about i never hear about their failures i never hear about that thing that didn't get commissioned or or that yeah. thing that they thought was really good, but nobody else did. Because why would they tell me that? It doesn't, there's one or two people who will. And I suppose it's that brilliant sort of self-deprecating well, exactly. wit that Andy has that uh, that we means he'll, yeah. I agree. I agree. There is some, yeah, totally. Yeah. But it's, uh, I, I suppose that maybe with these songs, I don't know, but the, there's a, a sense in which you are, uh, you, you know, they haven't been performed by Christina Aguilera or whoever, but they they are really um, important to you. You like them and, and you want people to hear them still. They're important to me because Andy's a friend, you know, and it was something that we did together. So, you know, there's something special about writing with somebody. And it's writing with somebody that you like and respect. And then you, you, you actually end up pulling it off and writing what I think are, you know, a couple of, couple of really good songs, you know. So I'm really proud of them. You know, so it, it, it it's really just a, a thing of like, you don't want to leave things that you've done with a friend sitting on a hard drive to gather dust and nobody to hear, whether that's five people or, you know, 305 people, whatever, you know. It's nice <laughs> to actually just have them as a thing and go, we did that, great, you know. Yeah. And sort of move on from it. Am I right in saying that it's an EP? Is that how you're going to do it? Yeah, it's an EP. It's I think it's a CD and a 10-inch vinyl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought you know six was quite nice. Three aside, are there others sitting there, still on your hard drive? Well, there's a, there's another song actually, but it's on the next Dow's Braid Association album. Oh right, goodbye to you, Sister Shane, which is great. So that you know, had that not been recorded for the next DBA album, it could it might have been on on this EP, but mm-hmm. we sort of did that, and you know, so that was taken. In that particular case, was it? Did it fit? It's, is is there a, in your head something that feels like, oh, th- this is right for the Dan's Braid, and this is right for some other project? Did, did did that particular song just feel right for that? Well, we were working on the the Dan's Braid album in twenty twenty one, and you know, I just heard that song, sort of, you know, out of the blue, just heard it, and I thought, yeah, it's a bit great to do for that, and I talked to Andy about it, and this was before any inkling of uh, an EP was even, you know, a thought. So, you know, perhaps I'd have waited and not done that. You know, it might have been included on this, but it was just a timing thing. We were working on the album, Jeff and I, and I thought, you know, it'd be great to, you know, to have something with Andy on it. He's been so supportive of, um, as you say, you know, he played on Skyscraper Souls and, you know, played amazing guitar parts on that and really got into the spirit of it and it meant a lot to me, you know. So I kind of, it was, it was sort of feeling like, you know, I wanted to give him something back by including this song that 
was up until then lost and forgotten. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and while we're mentioning that uh, album, Andy plays, I think, on or appears, and I was always playing, he, he appears in some form or other on four tracks, which are Prelude, Glacier Girl, Darker Times, and then the finale um, on that album. Uh, talk about maybe, maybe this is the time to talk about his contribution there because. I know there's mandolin, but there's also backing vocals, and you've just mentioned guitar and so on. Um, and yeah. it's maybe not always—he's not always necessarily foregrounded in the mix, is he? He's he, so you might uh, not immediately identify a characteristic style in there. No, I think you can tell it's him on darker times because he really he loved that song. And there's the line in the verse that says, um, "We are all one energy." It's a very kind of like you know, sort of um, spiritual kind of song i suppose and, uh, and you know um you give me light in darker times essentially it's like a you know coming through the the chaos of neurosis or whatever and he heard that line and picked it out and and said i want to do a backing vocal based on that line it's interesting you know i'd never would have thought about this is just a line in the verse and that's why sometimes it's fantastic to collaborate with people especially people as as you know clever as andy so he picked that line out and made it a thing so so I just inflated it even bigger and put it everywhere and then sent it back. And I said, well, you know, this is fantastic. And and then I made the prelude at the end, which wasn't part of the original song. I thought, well, we've got to end with that now because it's such a nice thing. So, you know, it was really lovely to, to work on that and just allow him, to, obviously, to just, you know, go where he wanted to go. And I know you've talked in the past about Glacier Girl, that the, the, the things that Andy brought to that is is a very sort of... Andy kind of thing, which is the the way that his synesthesia sort of means that yeah. if, if he's doing a song about a glacier, then <laughs> he makes it sound chilly. Yeah, well, exactly. Like the beginning of Snowman, you know. And yeah, it's it's, it's really lovely to, you know, really does um, see music like that, doesn't he? And I think that's why when you listen to his songs for XTC, you can't really extricate music and lyrics. It's like one and the same. It's that's it's all locked in together because he 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 sees he thinks of something and it straight away transmutes into a musical yeah. form on the ep you know there's the the song april in new york he said you know it needs marimbas he needs to sort of play he's singing this sort of marimba you know that kind of thing marimbas because he could he could sort of smell new york and he wanted to transfer it onto the recording you know so we kind of worked on the arrangements for the songs on the ep over the either like we're doing now on a zoom thing or over the phone and he would say you know try some marimbas and it really worked you know it's great you know you really wanted to get that kind of and there's a little uh after the the phrase april in new york which ends every verse there's a little um kind of riff a sort of fanfare if you like which he was absolutely you know a stickler for he said you know it's like this and he kept singing these notes which are kind of odd you know, jagged sort of notes. And he said, you know, it's kind of like New York. And it really does sound like that. I sort of played the, the riff that he dictated over the phone. And it, it's like New York. Great. Yeah. And I'm just laughing because the idea of dictating a riff over the phone sounds fantastic. Yeah. And, and and I think that April in New York is one of the two that you said that started off with his lyric and then you set it to music. And then it sounds like he's then commenting on the or joining in on the arrangement it's a sort of very even after the initial he does the words you do the music stage there's still a lot of 
uh, contribution from both of you in terms of the, the what the final thing sounds like. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean it was that was part of the fun, really. Yeah, because I mean yeah. I could just go off and sit in a room on my own and do it. But what, where's the fun in that? You know, uh-huh. every every week we'd have a a call or a Zoom or whatever, and we'd just hash out whatever song I was working on that day, and I'd have it up on the in the studio, and we just yeah we'd just kind of chip away batting ideas back, and I send you mm-hmm. a mix, and you go that's good. What about this? Try that. You know. We did it with um, the title track, Queen of the Planet Wow, because I've got the lyric. So obviously like a sci-fi 50s <laughs> thing. So immediately it's like, well, it's got to be that. But then he had ideas of like the zap, how, which, you know, is the lyric it opens with. And he said, you know, like a big sort of like, you know, stop, like a big band stops when they hear that word and they stop. You know, and it's great fun to make that work. Mm-hmm. So chipped away at that and sent about like this, you know. Yes, like that. <laughs> Good fun. Hello, I, I'm, I'm intrigued that Queen of the Planet Wow was written in that way because it reminded me, the first thing I thought of was uh, Let's Make Everything Love, which is another one from the, my failed songwriting career, which is a sort of big band, j- jazzy sort of thing. So I kind of imagined yeah. it, it was Andy doing something in the same vein, but that's actually you doing something in, in, in that vein. That's and, me doing in yeah. the vein and, and based on conversations we have. But I actually hadn't heard that song. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, because I, you know, Made of Stars was on the first um, part of, of that series. So I hadn't heard the second part yet. So it's interesting. That, and then I, then I heard that song. I thought, ah, he likes this style. Mm-hmm. Hiding it all these years. I mean, I know men who sell their own soul and things like that have inklings of, 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 of that kind of thing, you know, but. Yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. So he'd sort of pushed you into that direction without you, you even realising you'd been pushed into that direction. No, no, I, I realised I was being pushed in that direction. Yeah. And I I went for it. It was yeah. great fun. Yeah. To just not be yourself for the day. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the beauty sometimes, I think, of, you know, not sticking stylistically to one thing, which is the point about, you know, major labels. I could never have made an album like the albums I made in the in the beginning and then have a song like that on it. They would just yeah. go, what are you doing? <laughs> this is a big band record. This is a jazz thing. I know, but it's good fun. What's wrong with it? You know, and that was that, that that's the beauty of doing these kind of projects. You can go, I'll do whatever I like. And if you don't like it, you don't have to listen to it. Yeah. And I suppose there's a thing that, that you will have had all through your career when you've been writing for other people. And certainly this is what Andy sort of says. It's like if if you're writing with somebody else in mind, then it's like you're putting on another pair of clothes and you think, oh, I can be this for the day. And, and you can cosplay yeah. that um, that that uh, role. I must say, I do try and do me with the artists I've worked with over the years. I, I think there's a, if you listen to the stuff I've done, if you'll, listen to it as one sort of thing there's always a theme i don't know it's my sort of love of, of you know chords and the writers i kind of loved growing up like paddy McAloon and people like that and had great chord changes i've taken that with me and and i'll never let it go you know and i always try and sneak things like well Sierra and i wrote a song for the great gatsby film called hill and run and it's got you know like three modulations in it <laughs> but it but you can't tell. It's one of those subtle things where it modulates and it just feels right, you know. And sometimes for me, the thrill of a modulation that is almost invisible is just, it's the best thing. I can't describe it. It's like, we got away with that and it worked. Yes. 
the listeners in a different world that don't quite know how they got there, maybe. Yeah, but they do know. That's the thing. They do know. Music lovers know. They feel it, you know, and I think there's something great about a great modulation that Mm -hmm. just happens without you noticing, but your heart knows. So anyway, yeah, I like those kind of, you know, writers, and I think I've tried to have, have... a bit of me and everything that I do. Otherwise, you couldn't do it. I mean, you'd be a fake, wouldn't you? You'd be pretending to be someone you're not every day. And that mm-hmm. yeah, I would have given up, given up long ago. But there's a thread. It's a bit like, you know, you listen to a, a Trevor Horn production or a Steve Lipson production, you know, it sounds like them. I'm intrigued to know what it feels like for you as an XDC fan to send... And 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 maybe you can say about this that the first time you did this, you, you send a song to Andy Partridge and say, "What do you think of this?" You know, what what does it feel like to be that person? Yeah, oh, great! Actually, I think the first thing that we did together, I think, it might have been um, "Woman at a Spinning Wheel." Well, slightly different chords now; it changed, sort of mutated slightly from the original. But I think, uh, and we'd had a conversation before. And I, if you ask him, was I nervous about sending it to someone I had revered? You know, as a fan, no, no, never felt like that. I think we've always had a mutual respect for one another, and you know, it, it's a joy, really. Now, I would never send him something that I thought was absolute rubbish. So there's got to be a kind of confidence in, in what I'm sending before I press send. That's very nice because it just means that you can be creative with each other. You're not having to to oh, yeah. bow down to each other. No, no, not at all. It's like a, it's, it's a total lover of music mm-hmm. i mean we just chat about music like we're just record fans mm-hmm. i think you know what's so nice about andy is having had this kind of crazy sort of life and you know he's still a fan of music and it comes across when you speak to him, as you know so yeah and i'm the same I, it's no i've never lost that thing if a vinyl album comes in the post from amazon yeah <laughs> Sorry, a bit of an advert there. Um, it's always a thrill. It's like, oh, that's great. It's an album. You know, <laughs> I've never lost that. That's lovely. And um, sticking with Woman at a Spinning Wheel, as you've mentioned it, um, it feels to me like it could have come straight off Band on the Run. It's a lovely sort of McCartney-ish, uh, both melodically and, and uh, the whole whole mood of it. Was, was that on your mind? I mean, it was fun to do that. It was absolutely, you know, not really the writing so much. Although, yeah, I mean, the, there's, the way I'm singing it is obviously deliberate. Um, so I suppose the writing was influenced. But the, definitely the recording is like, you know, the missing track off Red Rose Speedway. Right. That was, we were laughing about it. You know, it's like, let's try and make it sound like the missing track off Red Rose Speedway. <laughs> Why not? You know. So I got the right artist. I just got the wrong album. That's okay. Oh yeah. no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm just being cool. I'm just thinking out, but not as well known. No, but you're right. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's it, it, it's kind of you know, it's fun to do that sometimes and do a pastiche, but an original song, you know. And and what was in that particular song? What was the balance between who wrote the words, who wrote the music? How did that work out? Actually, again, I think um, Andy wrote the words, but I think this time. The tune was written first, and we'd done that on, on a couple of the songs. Um, I wrote the tune and, and, and a sort of rough demo, just la la laing it, and sent him. I said, "What? What do you think about this idea?" And then he'd write the words to that, you know, to the sort of sound of the 
not the f- phonetic sound because I'd just be singing gobbledygook or whatever mm-hmm. with a nice tune. But then he'd have the idea, okay, I've got this. And, and then he sent me the lyric back for that. I demoed that original version, which is slightly different to the finished version. This is in 2014. And then cut to 2021, I went back to that original version, scrapped the melody, and rewrote the melody and the chords with the lyric that was in existence for years, you know. So it's, it's gone around the houses. And that's why it sounds a bit more McCartney, because I just maybe I've been watching the Get Back Disney thing. And I was just in that mood, you know, so I sent him it back and this is great, you know, like a new song. But it had gone around the houses, originally starting with the melody, lyric, coming back, different melody to the existing lyric. And and time, I suppose, is an ingredient there. You, you need that length of time to come back to it afresh and think of it anew and, and look at it, sort of like collaborating with yourself in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's giving you time to, to actually know it inside out and go, oh, okay. I've worn that coat now. I can uh-huh. a different one. Um, I'm, it's making me think, though, that I know from what other people have said and and uh, you know observation that Andy is exacting. You know, he he knows what he wants to to hear. He has the ideas in his head, and and he's very precise about mixes and 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 all of this sort of thing. You know, Stephen Wilson's remixes and so on. He'll he'll pay full attention to those. Um, uh, does he? Does working with him up your game? You know, does he make you work on the melodies? Does he make you work on the words? Is he is he is he quite exacting from that point of view? Yeah, he is actually in terms of um, arrangement. Definitely, you know, he's a stickler. I mean, he he would listen to a, a version that I think, well, that sounds like finished, and he'd go, I think we could get like ten percent out more of that, you know, or whatever, you know. What about trying this? Or why don't you sing the end line? slightly different with this phrasing it was really interesting because it was like sort of you know taking the songs to like a surgeon you know <laughs> in a good way you know it's it's really rather than just going yeah that'll do that's got a vibe you know that sort of punky kind of ethic you know that'll do mix it he's more like let's let's chip away and, and it was great fun to do that yeah and you're saying that as a very accomplished producer yourself, you know, it's not like you're a, a newbie yeah. wandering off the street. Well, exactly. I'm happy to do and go down that road because I, I'm like that with everything, really, myself. I quite like when the artist or the whoever I'm working with has left the building and I can just be alone with the track or the project. Right, okay, that's my happy place. Get me a cup of coffee and leave me alone for seven hours. Goodbye, world, you know, <laughs> into editing the shit out of it. So it's not a thing that was like alarming to me. Andy's absolutely like that. Yeah. You should try this plugin, you know, it'd be great for the blah, 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 and, you know, mastering ideas and mix ideas. And why don't you pan everything right, you know, pan that left? And, and I did that with Wilma at a spinning wheel. I thought, okay, I'll give him what he wants then. I did the McCartney sort of pastiche, um, you know. And got the drums, and I pan them completely right, and I pan the bass right, and I think some other stuff, and the vocal or whatever, the backing vocals hard left, and we came back somewhere sort of in the middle. It was a little bit harsh, but it was fun to do. You know, he's like, maybe you should make the kick more in the center. It's a little bit. <laughs> You've gone too far now. <laughs> And does it work in the other direction? Do you do you keep him 
uh, in check as well? Do you sort of try and push him or is it not? Is that just his personality? I mean, have conversations about about stuff. You mean lyrically? Or, or, well, yeah. Maybe it could be. You, I mean, do, would you ever say, oh, you could do better than that, Andy? Or... Not with these lyrics, no. I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, I think if I'm always very mindful, I mean, unless it was, you know, completely something completely wrong or stuck, stuck out like a sore thumb. I like to just keep the ball go rolling, you know? I think you can put a spanner in too soon and then the whole thing falls apart. So it's like to push it through to the, almost to the end and then go, what about if we tried that word? Or what about if we change the melody there? Mm-hmm. And everyone's just on board and everyone's feeling good about it anyway. You know, so I I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm like that. I can see that. It's much easier to build on something than to to destroy it and then have nothing. And then you can't, you can't build from nothing, but you can build on a, if you've got a bit of a platform. Exactly, because if you say it too soon, you can you can sort of you can kill someone's enthusiasm. And plus, I love his lyrics anyway. You know, it's great. Yes, it was great to just get a lyric like "Queen of the Planet." Wow, it's already absurd. So, what am I going to say? <laughs> you change spaceship. Yeah, it must be fantastic for you to be in that situation of just having that uh, one of those gorgeous lyrics to play with. It was, it was, especially that you know, because it's so visual. It's gr- it's great fun. It's like okay, well. It's not, you know, he's not just sent me a sort of generic, I love you. It's like, okay, this is like, I can see it. It's a movie. I can go to town on the, I can, I can dress up in the, in the velvet suit and cravat and just go mad. It's great. Uh, Definitely with that one. I think it was really great fun to do. Uh, Talking about I love you. There is a song called I Like Be With You, which is. Uh, which isn't just generic because <laughs> it has that strange uh, grammatically incorrect phrasing which makes it all the more intriguing I like be with you um, was that was that a phrase of his? Yeah it was and, and but I don't think it was initially I think the lyric I think the lyric said I like being with you or uh-huh. something happened and I did the rough vocal back in 2014 sent it to him and I'm saying I like being with you and he said why don't you try singing I Like Be With You? <laughs> and I remember saying, okay, you know, interesting. And I did it. And I know instinctively why he said it, because it sticks out. It's 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 one of those things that makes you go, it's catchy. It's catchy because of the incorrectness. <laughs> if I sang I Like Being With You, it's a bit bland. It's a bit like, so what? And that's what's great about him. He's He's always like looking for that kind of quirky, strange little sort of nugget. So yeah, in fact, the guy that did the artwork was doing the back sleeve, and he and he he actually he sort of sent me the rough and said, you know, what do you think of this? And it had the title, "I like being with you." I had to go back. <laughs> no, um, it's not. I like being with you. It's I like be with you. And he said, "Oh, okay. I thought that was a typo." <laughs> you don't understand. We're illiterate. Yes. <laughs> Um, the 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 keyboards that you're playing on that remind me of Steve Daive. I don't know whether that was a, a sort of deliberate Costello reference, but I think you're the the way you're sort of. I think you're playing sort of quite wide chords, or you know, your hands are quite. The distance between your thumb and your, yeah, your little finger are quite wide. It's got that little riff thing, mm-hmm. which and, Andy came up with that riff actually. It was on a little sort of Celeste part on the very very original demo. He sent back we sort of demoed the song we had the verse which sort of repeats it's kind of like one verse really and then there's the middle part and he did that little do 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 on the 
little Celeste thing. So here we are, you know, years later. And I, I redid that, made it an intro, which didn't exist. It just started with the, the vocal. So I made that part an intro, but I did it with the piano, with the spreads, like the, the octave spreads, like you say, which is very, you know, Dancing Queen or Oliver's yeah. Army. Yeah. And you have this little thing that was really in- inconsequential. It was just a nice bit of fluff in the middle. Very pretty melody, but it was a kind of, it was just a thing that just came and went. And then actually to make it a thing, you know, it's another one of those things where you, you give yourself time to go, ah, that should be a thing. It's an intro. Mm-hmm. That's the whole crux of the thing, you know. It's joy- joyous, you know. Again, that's a quite an SDC thing, isn't it, to, to play around with structures so the what would yeah. have been the middle eight is the intro or whatever or yeah and to bring them the intro back in the middle mm-hmm. that's pretty mccartney-esque it's not quite as mccartney-esque as the other one but it's melodic and i, I thought of crowded house as well but it's in that kind of okay. uh, melodic pop sort of vein yeah it, remi- it reminds me of mccartney-esque kind of yeah. thing yeah it's the it's that no that's very mccartney and there are two that I think we haven't spoken about. Um, uh, Rain on a Burning Day, which is a melodic ballad. Um, how did that start? It started with just like a little piano thing. I did sing in that melody um, with gobbledygook lyrics. But I, I think I, I kept singing, you know, your rain on a summer's day, something like that. I had that line. But the rest of it was just a, you know, do-da-do-da, whatever. Nonsensical. But there was at the end of it all, it was you're like rain on a summer's day. You know, so then what's interesting is Andy will take that thing, write the whole lyric, you know, send it back and say, you should try singing rain on a burning day, which is very him, you know, because it's it's not as pretty. It's a bit like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You think, you know, it's like, what is it? Is it, are we in a nuclear holocaust or something? You know, and, <laughs> you know it's like, what is that? I love those things that make you think. Rain on a summer's day is, is pretty, but it's, it's you know, it's not as thought-provoking, perhaps. Yeah, and, and it's not so wrong that it becomes surreal, but it's it's kind of intriguing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are we in a war? You know, is, is there some a song about climate change? That came about like that. We sort of finished the lyric based on that, you know, your rain on a summer's day. There is only one word, a lyric, and I think in "Map to Eros," which is "Map to Eros." If I'm, if I'm, unless I've missed something, that's more of a sort of, a sort of a little musical experiment, I would say. The sort of piano refrain was the middle of the original "Woman at a Spinning Wheel." We any XTC absolute diehard fans will be thinking, "I want to hear the demos." <laughs> Never mind the EP. <laughs> but it was the middle of the original of "Woman at a Spinning Wheel." I had. And we ditched the original and rewritten it, but there was this bit that didn't fit with the new version. Oh, so nice, you know. So I made an instrumental out of that. And then Andy and I were chatting one day about titles for the EP. And he, he sent me a list and he said, what about, you know, blah, 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 blah. And one of them was mapped to Eros. So, you know, the next day probably went into the studio and just did a BV with that melody over the instrumental. Perfect. There you go. Final Done. track. Very good. <laughs> yes, it's reminding me when I, um, actually even now, I, this can still happen, but when I used to do Limelight, the XDC fanzine as a, as a teenager and beyond, um, 
you know, Andy would call me up and he would give me the names of the songs that were coming up. And you'd, you'd kind of think, what is this map to Eros? You know, what is this train running low on Solco, whatever it might be, you know, because the, the words just themselves didn't, you couldn't imagine how that could be a song. Um, and they would always surprise you from that point of view. And because, because of that, I think I'd never get, I never get tired of listening to those records. I mean, you can get really sick to death of hearing something that just goes around and around with that pop chorus, but not some of those songs. Train Running Low and Soul. I mean, it's just like, like it never gets old. No. It's like, what is this? It's <laughs> mad. Yeah. Great. And one thing that I would say about, uh, I mean, I've, I've listed the vast amount of music that you've been associated with, but, but I... If if I didn't happen to know that you were an XDC fan, I wouldn't say that you had been influenced by XDC. It doesn't sound like XDC, but maybe you maybe you think you've been influenced in in a different sort of way. Oh God, I mean, I I really think I I think it's everywhere. Honestly, we'd have to dissect everything. I tell you why that is. I quite like melancholia in in the way I write and and that pastoral kind of thing is 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 everywhere in the stuff that I write. If I was to write you a song today, I think there's a bit of them in, you know, just that, 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 that kind of, I suppose McCartney as well, you know, but XTC have absolutely influenced my, I think it's that love of English songwriting. Mm -hmm. That's why when I lived in America, I wasn't trying to do American music because, you know, they do that well. They've got that down. I would do my English version of it and i think it's yeah it's all influenced by those bands i loved like xtc and like i say prefab sprout and very very english kind of writing mm. all the kings you know walter you know i mean i love those kind of songs but you the sort of wistful yearning in them i would put your music more in the skylarking or apple venus category than than white music for example or go or go to I, I would is and do you have you i've quoted you already saying that you like every xdc song are you excited by the kind of earlier punky stuff as well as the bucolic stuff yeah i mean i love the you know the verse of are you receiving me with the bass line that goes up you know over that chord it's absolutely exquisite. Yeah. Then we're that is just mad and gorgeous, and not really didn't belong to punk. Mm -hmm. Sort of giving the game away with things like that. So yeah, I, it's, I do. I I love them all. The spirit of those early records as well. It's just it's wild, isn't it? Yeah, and so I'm I'm kind of thinking, yeah, because it's 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 the way an influence manifests itself. So you, in the way that we've just been talking about, you deliberately sounded like Paul McCartney. You you don't, and nothing I've heard that you've done sounds like XTC in that kind of, you know, sounds like are oh, you receiving me? But 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 the yeah. influence is there in terms of a chord change or a bass arrangement or something like that. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think uh, probably the you know later stuff. Skylarking, definitely. Um, you know, that kind of pastoral English pop. Yeah, because I'm a keyboard player, so oh, I can play guitar, and I do play guitar on the things that I write and produce or whatever, but predominantly I'm a keyboard writer. You know, I like sitting at the piano and writing songs. I like the chords that the piano yields. Um, it's a different kind of thing to guitar. Mm -hmm. I love listening to noisy guitars. 
I just wouldn't automatically go into the studio and plug in a Les Paul and make it noisy and do that. It's more like the sort of pastorally, the wide kind of, you know, soundscapes and, and lyrical things. I mean, like you say, there's a lot of stuff out there that I've written. And, you know, if you, the things that you listed at the beginning, of course, are very specific, you know, for a pop kind of, you know, area. And so, yeah, you're not going to, I mean, you're not going to find much XTC in a Beyonce song, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, or even a, a Sia song as such. But then again, you know, Kill and Run by, by Sia, I think if I played that to Andy, you'd probably go, it's an interesting chord change. I was trying to sneak it in. There's often the thing with an XTC record that there's something going in the opposite direction to the way that, you know, the, the, the general direction is this direction, but there's something else going in the opposite direction, which yes. discomforts you and unsettles you. And you wouldn't, as you say, you wouldn't do that on a, on a, on a song that was designed to be, you know, a, a global hit. No, perhaps not. No. And I'm not as, um, you know, what's the word? What's abrasive, I suppose, is another word yeah. as well. Yeah, that side of uh, it's not really in my personality, mm -hmm. but I'm but there's a titillation when I hear it. You know, this that's why I'm such a fan of all of it because mm -hmm. I can love the beauty of you know all the classics and I, I won't list them because you know, you know, I'm talking about the later stuff, but I'm thrilled when I hear something from early on and it's like you know, road, roads go to. The globe or whatever and it's like what how did you come up with that mm -hmm. and why <laughs> <laughs> and how did you persuade everybody else to play it as well <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, um uh, that thing about you being a keyboard player and and less so a guitarist andy's kind of the reverse he's a guitarist who who dabbles with keyboard how does how does he respond to your ability to play the keyboard because or or the other the other way that i could ask the question is uh something that dave gregory's observed is that when who can, and dave who can play the piano looks at what andy's been playing on crocodile or something so how do you know how did you ever come up yeah. with that yeah he, he's great like that it's kind of accidental isn't it because mm -hmm. he, he will say to me you know i don't know what chords i'm playing there sort of thing and i think those kind of accidental things are that's what makes it interesting I once met the guy years and years ago who wrote um, Winchester Cathedral and The Crying Game a long time ago. And he said something like, I don't know what I'm playing. And, and I thought about it. He was a very sweet guy, you know, and a long time ago I met him and he said, I don't know what I'm playing. I'm not I'm not trained, you know, I just kind of put my hands on the piano, something happens, but I don't know what I'm doing. And I thought about The Crying Game and how that's quite interesting, the way, you know, the chords and the way the melody goes up and then lands on that sort of, crying game, you know, with the chord. It's kind of wrong, but it's not. It's absolutely right. I think Andy writes like that, I think. You might say, not at all, but I, that's the feeling I get, that it's kind of accidentally stumbles across something and goes, what? That's great. It's less kind of like, well, this will work, and we modulate there, and here's the key chain. You know, and it all makes sense. That's what's great about it. Some of it does make sense, but but it's stitched together in such a way that it's perfect. And does that encourage you to think outside your musical learning, you know, knowing what the correct note would be? I've always liked to write for my own stuff and not have those constraints, if you like. I don't know what example I give you, but I mean, you know, 
if you delve into some of the stuff that I've done for myself, that there are interesting things that I just do because they feel right and mm -hmm. they're not playing by any rules. You know, I do, I do like to write like that. Yeah. Were you musically trained? Uh, no, I mean, just, you know, ear, just by yeah. ear. listen to records and. Because I think people who are musically trained find that harder, don't they? Because they know what the correct answer is. They know what the, you know, if you're playing in this key, then it has to be that, you know, that yeah. chord and that note. That's right. And it's very, um, like the musicians that I met in Nashville when I went there, you know, they're, they're lovely people and they're great and they're really accomplished, but everything feels a bit from a book or something. And I would go over there and I'd play and I'd go, what about this? You know, they go, no, you can't do that. <laughs> What's that? You know, <laughs> F minor diminished with an added tenth, you know, whatever. And it just, you can't get away with it. And I go, but it's beautiful. That's that's what it needs, you know. Mm -hmm. not happening. So those, I don't like to be rigid like that. What was your entry point with XTC? At what point did you first start listening to them? Around the time of uh, Sergeant Rock being on Swap Shop. And of course, making plans for Niger, which couldn't get away from at that point i think those two things and my, and my brother and i buying sergeant rock and having the fold out seven inch mm -hmm. ah, this is fantastic you know him putting it on his wall you know of his bedroom those two singles okay something's going on here we like this you know and we love the packaging I'm going to re-quote my quote that <laughs> I I just love every XDC song ever written. Where for you to say that uh, that uh, suggests to me that you did what I did and what many fans <laughs> of this particular band do, which is then you go and listen to every song ever XDC ever wrote. Yeah. You know, there, there, that becomes a sort of obsession. Is that what happened to you? It became an absolute obsession. Yeah, and I can remember you know having a lot of the albums, but then finding um, the Big Express after it came out. About a year, something like that, after it came out, a friend of mine was with me. We, I think we were in the, the Manchester Corn Exchange, and we found the, the, the circular sleeve. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. What's this? My God. You know, because the thing is, I have to tell people, it's a bit like um, I've got kids now, and they when, a, when there's a new album out or, or a new single or whatever by an artist, they know about it straight away. There it is. And all, all the spin-offs and the, every single, and the videos, and they've seen it all in 10 minutes. But back then, that wasn't the case. If something wasn't widely played or reported or, or written about, it could slip through the cracks. I mean, I remember being a massive fan of the first new music album, Living by Numbers and World, World of Water, and my brother and I have been obsessed with that album, loving it. Like, this is absolutely the best thing, and, it, and, and I still feel very, very close to that album. But we didn't know there was a second album called Anywhere. It just disappeared. So we found that about three years later in a record fair. What the f is this? A second album? And I, I, I feel like that about some of those, you know, the more, you know, troubled albums, should we say, which are some of my favorites, like Big Express is one of my favorite XTC albums. Finding that a year after it had been out. Hell, wow, you know. Stuff like that, kind of magical. One of the reasons for doing the book, what do you call that noise uh, in which you feature, uh, was because I wanted to have a sort of musician's eye view, or if you like a musician's ear view of of the band. And the reason for that is it kind of thought, I thought, 
there are just a lot of musicians who there are sort of musicians, musicians, aren't they? They're, 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 yeah. they're respected, I would say disproportionately given their, their commercial success by musicians, because they seem to be appreciated. I wonder whether that is true for you, that you're from a musical point, from a musician's point of view, you, you, you get more from them than, than maybe others. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really miss that now, actually. And I don't think it's just that I'm older. I miss those magic kind of surprises. Every XTC album that I bought would always be full of like, oh my God, well, that's just fantastic. That's gorgeous. What chord is that? And why are they doing this? It's just great. When Oranges and Lemons came out and just staying up all night, just listening to the LP, just like, this is the best thing I've heard ever. It was just so fantastic. Miniature Sun and Short Kills and Children. To end a double album with that. I really miss that now. I miss that when artists took a lot of risks. I think of um, like Scritty Politi, Cupid and Psyche in the same way, you know, from that one and hearing Hypnotize or Woodbees and just thinking, this is amazing. What is it? It's like from Mars with a synth. I, I read it. I found yeah, it. In I found an interview with you online that somebody had done, and uh, you mentioned Scritti Politi, and the interviewer clearly doesn't know who Scritti Politi is. And I was going, he doesn't know who Scritti Politi is. <laughs> but maybe they're in the same category that uh, that um, people have slightly forgotten. I mean, Scritti Politi actually were com commercially more successful at the time. Uh, but maybe it's one of those things that people just forget. I mean, I I know David Gamson very well, and I saw him, I was in LA about three weeks ago, and we met up and had a coffee and stuff. And He's a lovely guy, and we've been friends for about 10 years or whatever. And he was talking about that, and he said something like, all people ever want to talk to me about is Cupid and Psyche. And I said, yeah, but it was that good. You can't see it. But at the time, it was that good. Yeah. Because it was so different. And that's that's the thing I miss. That bold kind of, like, brazen, we're going to put this out, whether you like it or not, you know. And XTC had that. They were just sort of, they, they were quite... Um, they took a lot of risks, I think. They could have made life easy for them. I've said that to Andy. Could have made life easier for yourself, couldn't you, you know, with certain things. But that's what's fantastic about it. And, and looping back to what we started talking about, about the idea of having every song different from the, from the last, it was also every album was different from the last. So I've got very clear ideas of, it's often dictated by the, the, the color of the cover, you know, so in my head, English Settlement is a sort of green album and, and Big Express is a dark album but it's sort of reflected in the music as well the two things do actually link together and um so so the so that makes them more distinctive doesn't it that means that we're just going to go in the direction that we're going to go and if you want to follow us then this is the way we're heading isn't it yeah and that was where they were at that particular time you know and it's, it's lovely you, you know to be dictated to by record labels is a dangerous thing isn't it okay we didn't have to make money. That'd be great. You know, you could just make the, the music you wanted to make. Because, but that's what XTC Records sounded like to me. It's like, you know, they almost thought, well, we'll, we'll forsake the cash bit and just make the art we want to make, you know. But I don't know if that's true. I mean, maybe Colin and Andy thought this is, you know, the next Abbey Road. It's a funny contradiction, isn't it? Because they, you know, certainly in the early days, they said they wanted to be the next if not the next Beatles, they're the next monkeys. <laughs> you know, they wanted to have be on top of the pops and do all of that kind of thing. They they thought of themselves somehow as a 
as a as a pop band. This is pop being a prime example of that, and yet somehow it doesn't quite sound like that. It does. There were the two things at once, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. and just write. You know, they're they're writing. You know, from the heart. Uh-huh. That's true. Yeah. And if you're writing from the heart, you can't ignore that. You can't deny your your instincts. Uh, when you were first hearing those songs as a musician, where you literally working out the chords were you, were you playing along and trying to work out what was going on uh, you know i've got a pretty good ear actually so i can all, i would always pick out stuff i could i can sit at the piano and i i don't know just instinctively i i'm nowhere to put my hands and uh, it's just one of those things i i can hear something back once and i can pretty much pick out what's going on i mean obviously there are things like i say wrote, wrote, yeah well you go okay well that is because it's a, a meshed in so many layers. I think um, the the Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin version. Oh yeah, more straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I could. But yeah, of course, I would listen to the chords and just go sit at the piano and play them, and, and realize that that was possible. That you could go in that direction. That that could be something that you could you could do. It was allowed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I sometimes think so fortunate to be a kid during the 1980s you know because really some of the you know it's like um, just a, like a, a treasure trove of of ideas you can borrow from all of it and just you know make your own thing and it was a fantastic period for creativity so, yeah. so when when is your um the next day downs braid album coming out so um, that's coming out in September. The first single, Clear Light, is is out on the 30th of June. I'm really pleased with it. It's great working with Jeff. He's a good mate. And yeah, it's uh, different to the last one. Each album that we've made, Jeff and I, have, uh, has gathered more fans. And the last album did really well. And when a project that started off essentially as a love project starts to be financially viable, it's it's nice, you know. It's like ah, okay. They want us to do another one this time. Actually, people who liked the last album and the one before seem to be waiting for it. You know, excited about it. So yeah, I'm I'm pleased with it. Andy wasn't the only guest uh, instrumentalist or musician last time. Is is that going to be the case this time? Have you got other people coming in? Yeah, uh, Mark. I was singing a vocal on one of the songs again. So no, it just sort of. Felt right for him to sing it. It's called The Darker Side of Fame. And it's all about sort of, as a fan watching people you were a fan of, affected by the adverse sort of side of it. And I've witnessed that a lot over the years. And it's probably why I'm kind of happy in the studio and not <laughs> interested in that. Happy talking to XTC podcasts <laughs> as your level of fame. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy with my level of fame. <laughs> I think, you know what? I think. Watching the 10 o'clock news when John Lennon died in 1980, and I can remember being with my brother watching that, and it's never left my memory. I think that may have had, you know, quite a a bigger effect than than, than I thought at the time. Like, wow, okay, that's a bit scary. You were joining the dots, though. That could be the consequence. Yeah. yeah. I like being in the studio. And dabble in a little bit of, uh, you know, like like I said, live stuff, but just, you know, not too much. And do you have a release date for the Queen of the Planet Wow 
EP, if that's what you're calling it. Not sure yet, actually, because the Downsbury Association album's out in September. So we were sort of trying to not have them, you know, come out at the same time and uh-huh. be a big blur. Because I'd like the EP to stand alone in its own right and not get or disappear. So it might be the uh, beginning of next year. I'm not sure yet. Talk to the guy at the label. I'm going to sort of give it its own space rather than, you know, what's, there's no rush. I don't want to put it out. You've waited this long. Yeah, exactly. But that's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, you too. Really nice. What do you call that noise? Thanks very much to Chris Braid. And um, you can find more about him at ChristopherBraid.com. And of course, thanks very much to Andy Partridge for his contribution and to Chris Carey for this month's music. And thank you, of course, once again to everyone who has supported the podcast on Patreon. And you can join them at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. And I would like to give a particular vote of thanks to the Knights in Shining Karma, who are Terry Arnott, John Bicknell, Kevin Burt, Lorenzo Charchi, Cale Corbett, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Jeff Barris, Evan Fish, Leslie Gooch, Mike Grafe, Robert Graham, Camille Henry, Stephen Hope, Alan Hughes, Marek Kraus, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Liz Lynch, Murray Meikle, Yusef Murrah, Jeff Nicholson, Amy Parkinson, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller, and Martin Whitley. And you're all fabulous people. And I'll see you all next time.